In a moment, I'm going to read a passage of Scripture that is the background of um, what I want to say today. And it's uh, the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3. And uh, we'll read verses 19 to 28. Father, we thank you for this day. Uh, it's time of worship. And what a joy it is now to gather around your word and consider this great truth of the fact that we are saved by faith alone. I pray that we'll grasp it and understand it, Father, that the truth wouldn't get lost in my words and wouldn't be confused by what I say, but rather your Holy Spirit would be able to take these words and explode them in understanding in our hearts and minds. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're uh, visiting with us today, we're breaking our normal habit, which we are in here as a church, of, of following through a book of the Bible. And uh, for the last uh, two weeks, uh, this is the third week in the series, we're doing a, just a short five-week series on what are known as the solas. I'll explain that in just a moment. It's uh, in keeping with the fact that this is the 500th anniversary of the Great Reformation that was signaled, its start in a sense, was signaled or catalyzed when Martin Luther in um, 1517 attacked or glued his 95 theses on the church door in, uh, I say Wittenberg, if you're German, I think you say Witt Wittenberg, but um, anyhow, uh, it started, it was catalyzed then. And if you were to go to men like uh, Martin Luther or John Calvin or Ulrich Zwingli and ask them to articulate for them the five solas, they likely would look at you a little bit confused. Uh, it would certainly be part of their teaching, but the five solas were something that uh, began to be articulated about a hundred years after that. And they were a way of summarizing the heart of the Reformation. They were a way of uh, kind of helping us understand what the key issues were between the Reformers and the Roman Catholic Church. And so they have been articulated as these five solas. We looked at Scripture alone. And by that, we understand there that Scripture is the final and decisive authority and the only authority in our lives as Christians. We looked at grace alone, that we are saved by grace alone and only. We don't merit it. We don't deserve it. It is God's gift to us. Today, we are going to be talking about sola fide, or faith alone, reminding us that our soul way into a relationship with God is received by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And then as we sang today this De Gloria to God alone be the glory for all of our salvation. If you take these five phrases though and you just have them as prepositional phrases in and of themselves they are wonderful truths but they don't help us understand what was at the heart of the Reformation. And at the heart of the Reformation was the question of justification. I'm going to describe that in a couple minutes. Or salvation, or to put it in a, a, a question, how does one get right with God? Well, one gets right with God as explained in Scripture alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. In other words, all of those phrases, prepositional phrases, describe the heart of Christianity and how we enter into a relationship with God. There's a lot of terms that we use on a regular basis in church, and uh, you may have been attending this church for a long time, and you, this may be your first time in church, and 
We use words like salvation and justification, and we assume that everyone knows what we're talking about. And I thought, you know, this morning I just want to take a couple minutes and carefully define those um, short, in short phrases, but at least so that you have something to attach to when we use the word like salvation or justification. The word salvation is the master theme of the Bible. It's the, it's the issue of the Bible, salvation. Salvation uh, is described by one as a picture word of wide application that expresses the idea of rescue from jeopardy and misery into a state of safety. And it's described in various ways. We talk about the Exodus, which was the salvation of the people of Israel from slavery to the Egyptians. They went from a situation of jeopardy and misery into one of safety. We talk about Jonah being saved from drowning as God sent him uh, or sent a whale to uh, swallow him so that he was saved from the misery and the jeopardy that he was in of drowning and he was brought to safety. We talk about Ruth being saved from famine in the land of Moab and brought to Bethlehem in Israel where God preserved her life. We talk about David being saved from the hatred of Saul and the jealousy of Saul, brought from a position of jeopardy and misery into a state of, savory, or of, of safety. The gospel presents for us the ultimate understanding of salvation because the gospel, the good news, proclaims that God saves everyone who trusts in Christ from sin and sin's consequences. That our salvation from sin and its consequences is wholly God's work. And it's not an instance of us saving ourselves with God's help. What are we saved from? The Bible describes the fact that we are saved from a position of being under the wrath and the anger of God. We are saved from the power of death, that it does not hold us any longer because Christ conquered the uh, the death. We will one day be raised to life. We are saved from our natural position of being mastered by the world, by our flesh, and by the devil. We sang about this in a couple of our songs today. We are saved from Fear that our life engenders an awareness that things are not right between us and we describe it as God or Him as God. We are saved from the vicious habits that put us in peril. And so the question of the Reformation was, how is a person saved? And then there's another word that we talk about, and it will be the heart of what we are going to look at this morning, and it's justification. Justification was what some people call the storm center of the Reformation. For Paul and other gospel writers, it is the heart of the gospel. Now, justification is a judicial or a legal declaration. And it's critical that we understand that. It's an act that whereby God pardons sinners, those of us who are under his wrath, those of us who have disobeyed him and offend him, It's a judicial or a legal act where God pardons us. He accepts us as though we are just, and he puts us permanently right into a relationship with him. It's an incredible legal declaration of God. 
And this justification that we receive is entirely uh, a gift of God. The justifying sentence is God's gift of righteousness. And we are justified justly on the basis of justice done for us. It's not just a willy-nilly thing that God describes. His justice has been met in the life and the death of Jesus Christ. And Christ's perfection is then attributed to us in a legal declaration by God. One of the amazing things, and J.I. Packer describes this in one of his books, God's justifying decision is the judgment of the last day. We understand that at the end of this world, when everything has come to its conclusion, there will be a judgment where everyone will stand before God. And justification is a decision that will be rendered on that day, declaring where we shall spend eternity. But that decision in the future is now brought into the present so that we now live with the reality that that will be the declaration made on us. Therefore, we can live today without fear, knowing that that declaration has already been made. We can live without condemnation, um, wondering what the outcome is going to be. That's where the Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We have the benefit of a future declaration now because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we know this for certain, that God will never go back on his declaration regarding us. To be justified is to be eternally safe and secure. The means or the cause of that justification is personal faith in Jesus Christ as crucified Savior and risen Lord. The ground of our justification, the basis of that justification, is entirely in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. That's why our salvation is by grace alone, through, or through faith, or through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. It is a single, decisive declaration of God concerning us. We'll come back to that, but I, I hope I haven't muddied the waters, but I hope I've helped you understand those two terms. So how does a person get right with God? Well, let's read the passage that we're going to look at and then make a few more comments. Um, Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, declared righteous in his sight. For through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, apart from obeying God, so to speak. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ who God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness 
because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Then, what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By, by a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. How does a person get right with God? In Luther's world, 500 years ago, one's justification, that question, was in the minds of almost everybody that was alive in those days. As the Middle Ages were coming to an end, there was a heightened muddiness of this issue of salvation and this issue of being in a right relationship with God. They were aware through the church and they were aware through various other means that there is a holy God that will judge and that we were under his wrath and that he has much against us. And their concern was again and again, how can I, how will I find grace before this holy God? That was the environment, the context in which people lived 500 years ago. In our world... Today, this is not a concern. People do not live under a realization or a recognition that they are out of step with God. Most people in the first world are not bothered by thoughts about God or by the truths about God and His response to them. And you say, well, what's different? What has happened? What's changed over 500 years? Well, one person has said two things have changed. One is the eclipse of God. And the other is an intuitive humanism. They go together. In relation to the first, it's simply that God no longer dominates our landscape. God no longer dominates our mindscape. We don't think of him. He's not in our thoughts. He's, he, he's not in our awareness. He's outside of us entirely. There's a book written by a Jewish philosopher in the 1960s, Martin uh, Buber. And it had the title, The Eclipse of God. And what he describes is something like a shadow that is passed over the glory of God. That what has happened in our day and age is, like, is that um, self and man has sort of floated in front of God and we haven't extinguished God like the moon doesn't extinguish the sun. It just blocks the light of the sun getting to earth. And so in our wisdom, our human wisdom, we believe that we don't need God and we can live without God and so we have eclipsed God. We are a people who don't have God in our thinking. So many today don't even believe in His existence. There is not even an awareness to them that there is a God and that He is holy and that He is just. So unlike the context of the Reformation, where many were very much aware of the distance between them and God and the fearful implications of that, today we go on blindly aware of the perilous position that we are in. The second goes hand in hand with the first. And it's simply what one has called this intuitive humanism. It's really a consequence of the rise of man. We have set ourselves up as the center of life. We are set ourselves up as the reason for existence, as the reason 
for being. We are the center of meaning. It's the natural cause of naturalism or of secularism, the, the viewpoint that vastly dominates the philosophical and the normal environment of most people. God has been dethroned. God no longer matters. Who knows any more of a God who is holy, just, righteous, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent? I don't really care because I'm the master of my destiny. Yet the psalmist would say, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And so while after 500 years, we find ourselves in a different context, theologically and spiritually, than they were in 500 years ago, we are in just as much peril today as they were 500 years ago. We have simply deceived ourselves and been deceived by the world around us. And so it remains true, and Luther said this, if the article of justification is lost, then all Christian doctrine is lost at the same time. Or as another wrote, John Calvin, the doctrine of justification is the principal ground on which religion must be supported. So it requires greater care and attention. For unless you understand, first of all, what your position is before God and what the judgment is which He passes upon you, you have no foundation on which your salvation can be laid or on which piety towards God can be reared. And so the essence of the Reformation and the essence of the Gospel is how is a person saved? So this is our dilemma, the importance of justification and our dilemma. I've articulated this and I'll repeat it again, but we are under the wrath of God. You see, our reflex though, our instinct is that when we look in a mirror, we don't think of ourselves as a horrible sinner. We say to ourselves, I'm not such a bad sinner, or I'm not such a bad person. But it's like going to a carnival and looking at those carnival mirrors which distort reality. And you don't get a true picture of yourself looking at a carnival mirror. Nor do you get a true picture of yourself looking at yourself through yourself. The only way we get a true picture of ourselves is to look at ourselves through the Word of God. That's why it is so important that we regularly read the Bible. And as Luther began to read the Bible, he began to understand that God was even more fearful than he had first thought. And that he himself was more sinful than he had, had first thought. And he began to realize that the distance between him and God was exponentially greater than he had ever thought. And he was concerned with bridging that gap and he realized that there was no way that he could find himself back to God. J.I. Packer who many of you might have read, wrote in one place, the doctrine of justification by faith is like Atlas. I don't know, many of you might be aware of the mythological figure Atlas who was punished by Zeus and so he had to carry the weight of, he had to carry the world on his shoulders. So that's the Atlas that Packer is talking about. And so he says, the doctrine of justification by faith is like Atlas. It bears a world on its shoulders, the entire evangelical knowledge of saving grace. When Atlas falls, everything that rested on his shoulders comes crashing down. When this issue of justification by faith alone falls, Christianity crumbles. But sola fide, 
This view of faith alone is important not merely because the church stands or falls on it. It's important because you or I as individuals stand or fall on it. The place where and the time when we shall either stand or fall is the judgment seat of God. And justification has to do with our status before the last or this just judgment of God. Where every single human being will call to give, be called to give an account of themselves to God. We read it here. The law says that it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world. There's no exception there. There's nobody outside of that where the whole world will be held accountable to God. Another place it says it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. Another place, the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man that he has appointed. And so the scripture describes our dilemma. Our dilemma is how do we stand before this just God on that last day of judgment? How do we stand before God on that righteous judgment day when we are fallen? And Paul says very clearly, he says, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Do we understand what he's saying? He says there is nothing that any one of us can do to stand before God and say, I'm good. We say that, you know, I don't know if you ever talk to somebody and you know they've done something, I'm good. When God talks to you, you won't be going, I'm good. You won't be able to stand because there is not a single person here who has not lied, who has not coveted, who has not not worshipped God with their whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, who has not perfectly loved their neighbor as themselves. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, Paul tells us. And so this dilemma is one of eternal proportions. And if this was all that there was on this issue, then we would all be despairing. Because it's just bad news then. There would be no church. There would be no hope. There would be no salvation. Because all of us fall short of the glory of God. But Paul, I don't know if you notice, he leaves the door open here. He doesn't exclude justification altogether. He excludes it, though, based on our doing good works. Justification on the grounds of works is eliminated for every single human being the moment they sin. Because the law requires perfection. And it is something that we can no longer meet now. If you need to get 100% in your math score over four years of university... You can get one question wrong on one test over those four years and you are not perfect. Even though you get every other question right. And there's no sense then because we have sinned once that we can ever be perfect before God. That opportunity is gone. And it's like the psalmist says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, should mark sins, should count them against us, who could stand? None of us could stand. So that's our dilemma. We will be called to stand before a perfectly just and holy God, but we don't have a leg to stand on. That's the situation the gospel addresses. 
And if you underline words, or you might have a pristine Bible and you never underline anything, there's one word that you might want to underline in Romans chapter 3. That's that little word, but. That one word, but. Because through that one word, but, we have hope. As one person writes, with a single word that screams relief to the guilty sinner, Paul will begin to articulate our only hope before a righteous God. Though justification has been categorically denied by one means, that's through works of the law or the flesh, that no flesh will be justified, it is now categorically affirmed through another means, that no flesh is not the final word. There is another word. But he says, but now... A righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Outside of our law keeping, outside of our ability to be perfect, there is another righteousness. And although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, it is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And there is no distinction, he says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. To be sure, there are two ways of justification. The Bible articulates for them. One of those ways, though, is beyond us and our opportunity is long past. There is justification that is possible by keeping perfectly God's law. In thought, intent, motive, deed, act. In every single imaginable way, you can be justified before God if you are perfect. But the moment you sin, that way is cut off. But there's another way. And it's based on the righteousness of Christ obtained by faith alone in Jesus Christ. It's a righteousness that is provided for us, that is outside of us. It's a perfection that is given to us, that is not inherent in us, from God. That's the ground of our justification. This is why the Reformers fought and even gave their lives for this article of faith alone. Because we are saved by something completely external to us, by a gift that's given to us by grace, that a righteousness that is not ours but is Christ. Sola fide, faith alone, declares that the ground of our justification, our, our legal standing before God, is solely the righteousness of Jesus Christ. God provided, and this is the astounding thing of the Scripture, God provided for you and I what he demanded. This is where it says that he is both just and justifier. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we receive this gift by faith. The ground of our justification is the perfection of Jesus Christ. It doesn't come through sacraments. It comes by faith alone. And through our faith, we are linked to Jesus Christ. So that when we stand before God, no accusation will stick. None by our accuser, the devil. None by anyone around us. No accusation will stick to us because we are perfect before God at that standing. 
Remember I said it's a legal declaration on which the sinner stands or falls. Bear with me. Follow with me just a little bit. I'm not a lawyer. I've only been to court a couple times. <laughs> they were my wife's speeding tickets. I went with her. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. My wife is perfect. <laughs> um, bear with me, though. As we, we will be summoned one day to appear before the bar of God's judgment. And we will face a judgment that is based on perfect justice. Now, there is no such thing as perfect justice today. We have good justice, and we have, um, uh, I think, helpful justice, but it is not perfect justice. Because there is not a judge alive that knows the intent, the thought, the motive of a heart behind an act or a deed. We can look at external things and say, well, this, this, and this demonstrates motive or shows motive, but we don't know for sure what was going on in the heart and the mind of an individual when they broke a law. And so we are going to face perfect justice. We are going to stand, though, before a perfect judge. Before a judge who knows nothing of sin, he knows nothing of evil, he has never experienced. In fact, it is his perfect law that he will judge us on. Not only that, though, he is omniscient. That means he knows everything. He is fully aware of every deed, thought, inclination, word, and act. And so we will stand before this bar facing perfect justice from a perfect judge. And the psalmist again says, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? See, one sin, and I've said this again, and I'm just repeating ourselves for emphasis, one sin makes a perfect record impossible. Therefore, the door to our self-justification through our flesh is slammed shut. It is closed to anyone and everyone. It is true that my sins can be forgiven, but they cannot be undone. A wrong still has been committed and justice is still required. So you can slander me, and then after a while you can come to me and you can acknowledge that you broke one of God's laws, and you can come to me and you can ask me for forgiveness and I will forgive you, but a law has still been broken. Forgiveness is not justice. Forgiveness is a wonderful thing, but it is not justice. It doesn't make right. It, in a sense, overlooks. And so justice still has to be met. So God forgives us, but he doesn't just say, okay, that's done. His just requirement has to be met. And that's the dilemma. How then... Do unjust sinners ever have hope to survive a judgment before the court of an absolutely holy and just God? This is where the scripture is beautiful. It says in Corinthians that God does the unthinkable. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us. His son, Jesus Christ, is perfect. He perfectly obeyed God from the moment of his conception to the day of his death in thought, intent, and motive, and deed, and act. He perfectly fulfilled God's standard of righteousness. 
So what God does is he takes our sin, all of the, uh, the rebellion, all of the, uh, the strain, all of the going outside of the boundaries, all of the saying, God, we don't want you in our life. He takes all of that and he places it on his son, Jesus Christ. And then in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, we talk about that as the cruelest, darkest night because on that cross, God poured out his wrath on his son. And his son paid the penalty for every one of our sins. So God has still been just. His justice hasn't been set aside. It has been fully met in Jesus Christ. And then God takes the perfection of his son and he places it on us. So that we are seen by God as perfect. That's his declaration. We are now perfect because we have the obedience of Christ credited to us. And so God can justify us. And so God is both just and the justifier of us. He made him who knew no sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's incredible. It is nothing less than acquitting us from the charge of guilt as though innocence were proved. And as God looks at us, he looks at us as perfectly righteous and as innocent with no charge sticking against us. We are declared righteous then not because of anything that we could ever do or have done. We are declared righteous because Christ's righteousness has been imputed. That means it has been placed upon us. It has been given to us. It has been charged to our account. So, we are justified through the death of Jesus. He, his perfect, or, he bore the punishment of our sin. He died in our place. And we are justified by the life of Jesus. His perfect obedience has been counted towards us and God sees us as perfectly obeying the law. So we receive and are justified in no other way but through faith alone in the perfect life and the substitutionary death of Jesus. This is staggering. I hope you understand that. Because we are bent on wanting to work for stuff. We don't want anything for free. We want to contribute. And even when we find ourselves in a tough spot, we still want to do something to get ourselves out of that tough spot. God has declared, and we know that we are done. And we are saved not by anything that we do, but by simply saying, Jesus, I trust in your life and in your death. I put my faith in you and you alone. And I am free. My sins are forgiven. I do not have to do anything to achieve that before God. That, loved ones, is simply amazing. So Paul then says, what becomes of our boasting? We are prideful people. We're always comparing ourselves to other people. We do this. And, and, and so even on issues of salvation, if we are given enough time, we can say, well, you know, God really loved me because I'm, a, I'm okay. I know I've messed up a couple times, but I'm okay. 
I might not be as good as that person, but I'm a lot better than that person. But Paul says, listen, when we are saved through grace alone, by faith alone, all boasting is set aside. And you see where your boasting goes? Where does your boasting go? To Christ and Christ alone. And where does the glory go? To God and God alone. Because God in His mercy gave us grace that we might be saved through the work of Christ by faith and faith alone. Staggering. If you don't know God, and if you're not in a relationship with God, you do not have to do a thing. God has done it all. Will you not receive His gift of grace? Trust in Christ and be eternally secure before God. Father, we thank you for your word today, for this profound truth, the good news of the gospel. I pray, Father, that those of us who know you as our Lord and Savior will find this to be a needful, necessary reminder to take us back to the simplicity of the gospel, to boast in Christ, to glory in you, Father for our great salvation. And for those who are searching and maybe becoming aware of the gulf that exists between them and you, Father, I pray that they would not despair and lose hope, but that through your Spirit you would magnify Christ before their eyes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.